Hey, I got so much response from last weekend. Can we just give it up for Bree Johns? Didn't she do a great job? You know, put it, if you're watching online, put that in the chat, you know, let us know, you know, your impact, you know, just heard from a lot of ladies, especially, you know, about that. And I'm so excited that you are here this weekend. The reason I'm excited is because we're going to be able to have a family discussion. And so if you're not yet part of the family, this kind of gives you an inside look to kind of what we're about. And you're going to kind of see why this is so critical for you and for us as we continue to move forward in faith. I wonder, have you ever been on a winning team? You ever been on a winning team? Now, a winning team could be, uh, you know, a sports team, obviously. It could also be uh, at the business. It could be relationally, you know, in a marriage or a family. There's so many winning teams, you know, that are out there. I, I remember my, one of my first experiences, you know, as a, and a great winning team in a culture came when we got a brand new head coach for our football team in high school. And I was going into my senior year, and the previous year, uh, we were like two and seven, you know, was, and we had basically almost the same guys that were turning that next year. And he sat us down before we ever started, and he says, all right, gentlemen, if you're going to be a part of this team, here's what you need to know. We're going to have some goals, we're going to have some roles, and we're going to go on a journey together. And it may not always be fun, but if you go on the journey with me, then I promise that if you trust me with the roles that I believe that you're supposed to play, that we're going to accomplish the goal in which we have going into the season. And sure enough, because we bought in, uh, we actually finished the season something like nine and two. It was a complete turnaround because we understood that a winning team has goals, it has roles, and that there's a journey that's involved. You see, this past series, you know, we looked at an identity series trying to answer the question, who am I? And it was this uh, concept, death to selfie. And so we took a lot of time trying to figure out who I am. But here's what I want to make sure you understand. You cannot discover, we tried to say this every single week, who you are apart from God and also apart from relationship with other people who are also focused on him. That's what it looks like to actually discover who I am. In fact, I think one of the questions that we didn't answer that we're going to spend the rest of our time answering, you know, on this day is who are we? Who are we? Not who am I, but who are we? Because then we'll find out our identity. Because Jesus has an idea of what this looks like. He has an idea of the importance of finding our identity through Christ-centered relationships. He has designed and wired us for relationships. How do I know that? If you go back to the beginning of the Bible, you got Adam and Eve, right? But before Eve, started with what? Adam. Adam and creation was created. No sin, everything was perfect in the garden. And what did God say? It is not good for man to be alone. So he creates Eve. In other words, he wired humanity to have to be in relationship with one another. And this is all before sin to be able to take place, that we are wired for relationship. In fact, if you go through the rest of the Bible, and you start thinking about famous things like the Ten Commandments, right? We always think of the Ten Commandments are these laws that are given about our relationship with God. Actually, if you notice the laws, six out of the ten deal with our relationship with God, four out of the ten deal with our relationship with one another. If you go back and look at that, like uh, do not murder, yeah, that probably hurts relationship, right? 
Do not commit adultery. Yeah, that hurts relationship. You know, do not envy. That hurts relationship. See, our God is a relational God. How do I know? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three parts. Even from the beginning, He models and wires and is wired for relationship. If you go through the rest of the Bible, especially our New Testament, I know we're Americans, and we have this individualistic idea as we read the Bible. And so whenever we read the word you, Y-O-U, we actually think it applies to me personally, which it does. But do you know that almost every single Y-O-U statement in the New Testament is actually plural? Should actually be repronounced as y'all. Y'all need to do this. And if you start reading the Bible understanding that it's not you individually, but you all, you'll understand, wait a minute, was Christianity an individual relation, a religion, or is it a communal relationship that God wired for us to experience that we can't fully understand or experience outside of relationship with one another? Uh, let, let me give you, you know, a, couple, a couple others. Uh, the Lord's Prayer. What is the very first word of the Lord's Prayer? Our. Our, that's weird, because when Jesus taught people to pray, I thought we were supposed to go by ourselves. We we're supposed to have this personal relationship with God. And it's supposed to say, my father. No, when he says, when you pray, pray like this, our father who art in heaven. In other words, the expectation is that we don't do this all the time alone. We actually do this with other people. Uh, when you look at the, the, the greatest commandment, when, when, when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is just as important as the first, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Not separate, not one more than the other, but we are wired and we are designed for relationship. And then the list could go on and on and on. The reason I tell you this, because I think that this moment is an opportunity to remind us who we are at Valley Real Life. More importantly, who we are in Christ. And so what we're going to do is we're going to unpack where this all comes from through the lens of goal, roles, and the journey. Like, for example, um, our journey at Valley Real Life started a little over 16, 17 years ago when we were planted from Post Falls Real Life Ministries, where Jim Putman actually wrote a book on this very subject called Church is a Team Sport. What does winning actually look like? And in it, he focuses on scripture of what Jesus gives as the goal, of what Jesus gives as the role, and then the journey that he actually takes us on. And so as we go through this, if you get nothing else from this message, here's what I want you to get. Jesus's church has a goal, which is to reach the world for Jesus. Jesus's church has roles, meaning how Jesus set up the church that he wants all of us to be a part of. And Jesus has a journey that he wants us to go on so that we can fulfill our roles and fulfill the goal that he has for us. So let's take a few moments just to unpack this. First, the goal. What is Jesus' vision and mission? What is his vision and mission? How did he set all of this up? First, the vision goal is to reach the world for Jesus one person at a time. This is why he came. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That is why he came. Luke 19, 10, for the son of man came to seek and to save those who were lost. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, which means telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Or 1 Corinthians 9.19, Paul writes, even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people 
to bring many to Christ. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. See, if we're going to be part of Christ's goal, that needs to become our goal, individually, but also together as a church. That we are here as a huge goal to reach as many people as possible. Because as you've heard me say before, the only thing you can take with you when you die is other people, the impact that we can make. So if the, if the goal is to reach people for Jesus, to be focused on him, he doesn't just want us to come to relationship with him, he wants us to grow on him. In other words, the mission goal is to be and to make disciples. Matthew 28, Jesus says, here's the goal. He told his disciples, this is after the resurrection. This is before he's going to go to the Father. He's going to leave this earth. He says, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, here's the goal. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So our goal is to be and to make disciples. To reach the world for Jesus. This is Christ's goal for his people. This is our purpose. This answers who we are. This is the goal. But the problem with that is as Americans, if I were to ask you this question, what is a disciple? You're supposed to go make disciples. What is that? You would give me a hundred different answers. Somebody who prays, somebody who serves, somebody who knows God's word, somebody who you fill in the blank. See, Jesus was walking along the lake and sea of Galilee. And as he's walking along, he sees these fishermen that are cleaning up their nets after a large catch. And he looks at them and he says these words, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. See, in the invitation is the definition of what it means to be a disciple. To be a disciple is someone who is following Jesus, is changed by Jesus, and is on mission for Jesus. That's clarity. That's crystal clear when you start looking at like, there's the target, there's the goal as we are to be and to make disciples. And so as a church, we should be a church that ultimately tries to be deep and wide as we reach and as we develop people. I can just tell you in my own life, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the impact of other disciple makers who in my house and outside of my house invested in me, loved me, encouraged me, challenged me to be like Jesus. And so if that's the goal, the question then becomes for us, what's our role? What's the role? What is Jesus's way to organize and run a church? See, the church actually runs like an organization, but it relates and grows as a family. In fact, this is the way God's always done it. In fact, if you go to the Old Testament, when God had his people and Moses was in charge, Jethro's father-in-law says, whoa, whoa, you're going to kill yourself because it can't all be around you. Why don't we organize this differently? And he set up leaders who oversaw different pods and different groups and made it a God of order. See, God is a God of order. In fact, Jesus is the one that set up the church with roles and places. He's the one that organizes his body. It's a living organization. It's a living organism. People say, well, no, church, church isn't an organization. Actually, it's the most important organization that has ever existed with the most important goal that could ever be accomplished. 
That's how he set it up. So how did he set it up? Well, first you need to understand it like this. Jesus is the owner. It's his church. Valley, real life, all churches, his church, he's the owner. Why? Bought and paid for with his life. Ephesians 5, 25, Christ loved the church and he gave his life for her. As you heard, you know, before as we celebrate communion, you know that we take it every week here at Valley Real Life. Why? To remind us that this is Jesus' church. To remind us that we're only here, no matter what we talk about, we're only here because of Jesus. It's his church. We just get to be a part of it. Uh, The next group of people are the elders, Right? This is the way it was organized. The elders are called the overseers. In fact, in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, it says Paul and Barnabas also appointed elders in every church. They went around and started all these churches, and after they left, they would always leave them with elders at every single church. With prayer and fasting, they turned the elders over to the care of the Lord in whom they put their trust. So what do elders do? See, there's character qualifications in the Bible, but here's what's interesting is that you don't know exactly what elders are supposed to do besides eld. What the heck is that? This is an overseer. They're supposed to shepherd. But even what does that mean? And you'll see different elderships at different churches. And so I think it's important for you to be aware of who our elders are and what they oversee. So go ahead and check this video out with me now. Valley Real Life is led by a unified group of men from within our congregation. In accordance with 1 Timothy 5.17, we're charged by God with the spiritual oversight of our fellowship. Our elders at VRL are Paul Crooks, Anthony Fry, Wayne Williams, Dan Shields, and myself, Jason Baggett. Elders are held accountable to the highest of biblical standards and expectations from our congregation. We practice the biblical standards and expectations as laid out in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 8. We do not vote on decisions. We follow the practice of unanimity. We won't proceed until, after a time of prayer and reevaluation, we're able to be completely unified regarding a particular decision. And it's okay to agree to disagree as long as we walk out of the room united. Candidates are identified through relationship. This could be through life groups as well as other areas of ministry service. The candidates then undergo an interview process, which includes their spouse. They would attend regular elder meetings to determine if they have availability and a fit. The elder potential is then presented to the congregation with a one-week objection period, during which time the congregation can provide a biblical reason for why this person shouldn't be installed as an elder. If there's been no biblical objection, they would be installed as an elder. So as elders, what do we do? Well, there are eight areas of oversight that we have. We model the value of prayer by praying as a group for our church and the future of God's leading. We pray over the executive team, the lead team, staff members, and community. We pray for those who are hurting and in need of healing and for the needs of the congregation. We work through any doctrinal changes, remaining focused on our core theological groundings, and we continue to dive into the word to be a church transparently known for what we believe, standing on solid biblical ground. As elders, we relationally invest in our lead pastor and his family, and each elder and his family. Any changes to the lead pastor or executive team require elder approval. We look at high-level and futuristic strategic planning, like our ABCD process. We help identify blind spots, we ask questions, and offer insight into the future of Valley Real Life. We oversee the ordination and ordination process of pastors. We send out missionaries, we ensure their safety, and approve of sending people inside or outside the country. We direct the support of church plants and outreach programs. We review and approve the budget and any long-term partnerships with other organizations. We also have thresholds for the lead pastor and staff for any unbudgeted expenditure. Any permanent changes 
to the grounds of VRL campuses, which includes roads and capital improvements, must be approved by the elders. At the end of the day, being an elder is all about being a servant. Just as Christ, the leader of our church, was the ultimate servant, we want to be servants to our church as well. And we are here to care for you, the members and future members of Valley Real Life Church. And we do that by supporting our lead pastor, executive team, and the staff, and the volunteers that make up Valley Real Life. As elders, we are just as much a part of the church as everyone else. We hope that we get an opportunity to talk with you, to meet you in the lobby. So please come up, say hello. We'd love to get to know you. It's a multi-generational place, and we have a lot of opportunities that God's calling us to, to do His work in this local community. Can we give it up for the elders? Can we give it up? You should be clapping for no other reason than that's a sweet beard. I mean, you really, I got some beard envy, you know, as I'm watching, you know, Wayne Williams. So again, the way the church is, Jesus is the owner, the elders are the overseers. That would mean that the staff and the leaders are the coaches, that they're the coaches. In fact, Ephesians 4, 11 to 13 tells us our job description. If you're a high level volunteer or if you're on staff here, now these are the gifts that Christ gave to the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. So we've told our staff, we've told many of you guys, we're not looking for all-star players, but all-star coaches. We're trying to make sure that the body is involved, and that's kind of our role and opportunity, which means what's left is the church family. And the church family are the players. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, all of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. Not just an observing part of it, but really an integrated part of it. And one of the opportunities, and I know this goes against uh, American culture, it's, it's one of the verses in the Bible sometimes we want to take out of it, but in Hebrews 13, 17, it actually says, obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls, and they're accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow that would certainly not be for your benefit. See who benefits you know, from that, whether it's your small group leader or staff person. Obviously, if they're in sin, they need to be called out. But that is how God has set up the church, and that is how our church specifically is set up for accountability, for growth, for emphasis on the mission and vision that he's called us to be and do. So then what's next? So we've got our goal, and we've got the roles, and the next thing is the journey. The journey is our intentional discipleship process. See, a lot of people study the words of Christ and they look at his words and they're like, man, his word is so, so important and it is, but oftentimes we miss the method of Christ. How did he make disciples? How did he accomplish his goal? He took three years in relationship to raise up these 12 guys and then some and then release an army that would impact the world to which you and I are beneficiaries of that, that also carry responsibility to continue the journey on beyond ourselves. Now here at Valley Real Life, we call this our ABCD process. 
And so your journey as a disciple, you know, begins as you accept Christ. That's the A, you know, accept Christ as Lord and Savior. And then as a response to that, to be baptized, Romans 10, 9, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Or Acts 2, 38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, our emphasis is on accepting Christ. Our emphasis is on sharing Christ with so many other people, which is why when you take a look at our cross, and I sit back every single week in our worship service, knowing that every single one of those lights represents someone who accepted Christ, and then after accepting Christ, they decided to get baptized in his name just since last September. It's just absolutely amazing. And if you go close, as you can see, you can see the specific names that are written as they turn on their own light in Christ, that they write their names on it and the impact that's there. And you see our baptistry and and whether you can see it online or not, you know, our baptistry, you know, has all of this writing around it. What people have been doing is there's pens that are written all around and they write people's names on so that every time we come into the facility, every time we're coming online, we are praying for someone who doesn't yet know Jesus because we're trying to fulfill the goal of Christ, which he's called us to be and do, which leads us to the second part, which is to belong. To belong is a Christ-centered relational environment for discipleship. We believe that discipleship, you know, happens in multiple ways, and you're in one of them right now. In other words, that you belong weekly to the congregation, that you come on-site or online on a regular basis, that you say, you know what, I'm not going to miss because there's something that happens when we gather together. Uh, In fact, you know, some people have asked me when it comes to sermons, hey, why do we do so many sermon topics And I'll tell you just two quick reasons. Why? Because Jesus taught that way. That's one of the things as I watch him, that's what he taught. Second, that's how the apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Do you realize that most of the New Testament was written on questions that the churches had to Paul about things that were going on in their church or their community that they wanted advice from to which then he answered those questions, which is where we get most of our New Testament. But the importance of knowing God's word is so important, which is why Monday through Thursday at 8.30 every single morning, I'm online going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through different books of the Bible. And you're welcome to join. In fact, so far, just within the last year and a half, we have covered Romans, Acts, James, Philippians, and now we're into nearing the end of the book of Mark. And that's the first way that we gather together. Second is that we believe that discipleship best happens in circles than in rows which is why we encourage every single person to get in a life group, a men's, a women's, at Celebrate Recovery, which is Monday night, Pure Desire, Tuesday. You know, there's so many opportunities to get in couples groups, whatever it may be, so that you can become more like Jesus. And you can invite others to do it as well, which leads us to the C, which is contribute our time, talents, and treasures, you know, are in and outside the church, that we have an opportunity to all of a sudden You and I are the ones that grow when we serve and when we give and we are participating. Now outside, guys, our vision outside the walls is that one day if we were all to leave this community in an instant that the community would notice and they would grieve because of the impact that we have made, whether they've received Christ or not. That we want to be that kind of church, and that means not only what the church does in benevolent ways, but where you live, where you work, where you play, that God uses you in the lives of other people outside these walls. In addition, inside the walls, online, opportunities to serve, to be a part of Christ's body. He said, every one of you is a part of it. 
You know, where it's where he talks about the foot can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Everybody is needed if we're going to be what Christ calls us to be and answer the question who we are, which leads us to the D, disciple. Who is someone you are discipling? In other words, who is someone that you are sharing Jesus with, that you're inviting to your Christ-centered relational environment, that you're inviting to join you in serving or financially giving? Some people have been going to church for years, and they've never discipled anyone. That's not the process that Jesus has called us to be a part of. He wants us to be and make disciples. In fact, so many of you have done this in the lives of others. It's one of the reasons why God continues to grow, you know, this place, is that you've made a difference in the lives of somebody else. I want to show you a couple, and I want you to notice the progression, how they accepted Christ, how they belonged, how they started serving, loving, and how they have been discipling someone in a very specific way. Let's hear from the Bemises now. I basically knew nothing about Christ, zero. I mean, grew up in a home where Christ wasn't mentioned. You know, we didn't go to church. I didn't have any idea about anything about it. And because um, some people in high school were able to share just the simple gospel with me. When I was ready to accept Christ, realizing that those were ordained moments. Had that not have happened, I wouldn't have known about Christ. And so for me, accepting Christ as a young man and having those people be key players, it's like, who am I to withhold that? The Holy Spirit wants you to obey. So as I share and as I obey, oftentimes I do see success because the Holy Spirit has done the work. We met a young couple, um, Jessica and Chase. They had gone to church, I think, a few times, but didn't have a saving relationship with Jesus. And we just took the opportunity to minister to them in many ways. A lot of time spent building the relationship with them and being there when we'd see just their life and situation just go completely downhill, being there to just direct them back to the answer. And the answer is always Christ. I believe that the enemy does a lot of work and quite frankly, a pretty decent job of talking people down. Of, of trying to put people down in a hole of, of condemnation. And I think just believing that what was being said to him was the truth, that my view of him was positive, and that God's view of him was positive. To look back and um, see that someone accepted Jesus as their, their savior is one of the most beautiful, impactful things you can ever do as a human being because you see how it affects the generation to come and the generation to come, the generation to come. What an incredible story, what an incredible example of here's how I was impacted by someone who discipled me and I grew up and now I'm impacting someone else and that's gonna lead to one generation, to another generation, another generation, which is what we are in charge with. That's what God's called us to be. He says, here's the goal. Reach the world. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to use you. I'm going to use the Holy Spirit. Be and make disciples. There are roles that God has called all of us to be a part of. As you go on this journey of faith, that there's a role that God wants you to play as part of his church. As Americans, sometimes we think, well, I don't need the church. It's just me and God. And God didn't set it up that way. He set up his body for a reason. And then there's the journey. The journey that we go on through our ABCD process. 
is that we see Jesus exemplify over and over and over. And so as we close, I, I just want to ask you a couple questions for you to evaluate yourself. You're here at this moment for a reason. You're watching online or you're here in the room for this reason. How do you know if you're becoming or making a disciple? Here are four questions I want you to process as you go on the journey. Because when you go on the journey, it's going to be ups and downs. You go on the journey, there's going to be successes and failures. So how do you know if you're winning? How do you know if you're progressing? Here are four questions that help you know. Number one, am I growing in knowledge and application of God's word? Am I growing in my knowledge and application of God's word? John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and, and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Sometimes we try to live the Christian walk based on our own strength, and we got to be connected to Jesus. Or when Jesus said at the end of his sermon in Matthew 7, 24, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. Like a person who builds a house on solid rock, God's word is central, but it's not just knowing, it's applying his word. And that's how we continue to progress in our faith with him. Second question, am I growing in the fruit of the spirit? Am I growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5.22 says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I know a ton of Christians who have none of these. And so do you. They know, may, they may know a lot. They have a lot of answers, but I'm like, wait a minute. This doesn't feel very peaceful or loving or good or gentle or any of those things. And there's a Holy Spirit factor that's taking place that's trying to conform us. Here's the fascinating part. Every single one of the aspects of the Holy Spirit is exhibited in relationship with other people. It's not about me growing in patience with God. You know, it's about relationship with other people that this is most exhibited so are you growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Number three, am I growing in my love for God and for others? Is that something that's growing? Luke 10, 27, as I've said earlier, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then secondly, to love your neighbor as yourself. This is called the greatest commandment. But yet, a little bit later, John chapter 13, Jesus says these words. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. In addition to the two that you've heard, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love will one another will prove to the world that you're my what? Disciples. How do I know I'm growing in discipleship? I'm growing in love with other people who also put God at the center. Which leads us to question number four. Am I unified in the specific vision and mission and purpose of my local church family? See, here's what's on the heart of Jesus. Jesus prayed for his disciples in John chapter 17, but do you realize it's the one place in scripture that Jesus prays for you? And he prayed for me. Notice of all the things that he could have prayed for, that this is what was most on his heart. I pray that I, Jesus, am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Are we unified? Because when a team, you know this, when chemistry is good, when unity, when the goal is clear, when the journey is laid out and you get a team together, oh my goodness, that's when you see amazing things that begin to happen. 
Now, every team has ups and downs. Every, every church also does not, has all, does not have it all together. It, it has ups and downs, but can we stay focused on the mission and vision and process as we continue? Churches are always destroyed from within. You ever realize that? It's never from outside influence. It's always from divisiveness from within. Man, you think about these last few years. What a crazy last few years. And yet I've been so proud of you. Because for most of you, you remain focused on Jesus. In the midst of politics, in the midst of racial tension, in the midst of a a pandemic, in the midst of whatever it may be, you have stayed focused on Jesus. You've stayed focused on his vision. You've stayed focused on his mission. And God continues to bless and use you. Everything that we do is through this lens. Everything that we're unified about, whether it be the playground or expanding the lobby, is the lens of are we accomplishing the goal in which God has given to us. So what is your next step? In other words, what is your next step specifically in the discipleship journey? This is the challenge. We're here in May. Things are starting to return. If you heard Governor Inslee's announcements, we're in phase three, potentially fully open in Washington in another month or so. We were like, all right, there's going to be a return. So what an opportunity to set some of these things in motion. In fact, stay tuned because at the end of August, early September, I'm going to unpack this whole ABCD process even more so that you can say, what is my next step in the journey? Or for some of you, our next DNA class, you know, which is our family commitment time, is on July 18th. What another great step for you to take. See, you will become who Jesus wants you to become. Your identity will be fully realized through his body. Jesus died for the church, set up the church, the people of God, so that we could become who he created us to be on a winning team focused on him for all eternity. What is your next step? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for our time together. And I pray you would just lead and guide our decisions and our process now. Father, thank you that you've laid out the goal, that you have laid out for us the roles and that you've laid out the journey. Help us to be faithful, committed, excited, encouraged, and when we find ourselves discouraged, may we remain faithful to you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we close, once again, maybe your next step is to accept Christ. Maybe it's to be baptized. Maybe it's just to receive prayer. We would invite you during this next song to head to the cross. Because everything is at stake. There is no greater organization, there's no greater movement of God than his church, than his people to live on mission for him and impact people for all eternity. And you and I get the privilege of being a part of that. Small part, but a very significant one that can impact generations. Will you stand with me as we sing together?